And that seems to work. Now, the last thing I wanted to say was I had one, I'm a surgeon, so this happens several times. I go into a patient's room and say, Mr. Jones, um, good news. I didn't have to open and close you. I was able to take out your tumor. It was better than I thought. And this one particular guy said, well, I knew it was going to happen, doctor, because I had a 1,000 people praying for me. So, you know, the medical students were snickering. And, um, and afterwards, outside, they said, Dr. Lang, do you believe that? And I said, well, what you're asking me is not whether his faith or the faith of people surrounding him made his T-cells uh, better and eventually and his, and, and his optimism better and eventually that resulted in some output. We all believe that that's, that does happen to some degree. What you're asking me is did God change the laws of the universe because of this entreaty? In other words, does God change his mind? Now, how the heck was I going to – and I said, yes, I believe that. Now, how the heck was I going to answer that question on rounds, which I had maybe two or three sound bites? So what, I've done, what I did there and what I've done now four times is I said, well, I'm not going to answer that question now, but I will take two hours to write you what I believe so it's not a term paper, and I'll send it to you. And so that's what I did. I wrote an essay on does God change his mind. Mm-hmm. And – that opened up a lot of, a lot of people. I sent that out, and I can't tell you the number of students and whatever that call, called me, but it's a lot of work. <laughs> it is a lot of work, and it might be a lot easier just to say, I'm going to devote two hours to coffee late Thursday afternoon, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Come, and we'll talk about this off the grounds. might be easier. It's, for someone like me, it's easier to talk than to write. But if you, if you had the time and you did it, that's fantastic. I mean, I, I think these are the kinds of things, this is why we need Christians in academia. You know, we need people who will be salt of the earth, you know, who will hold up an alternative way of looking at things. So it sounds to me like in that situation, you did a magnificent job. By the way, does this lecture that you gave, is this, um, can, you, can we get that on the, on the web? Yeah, I, I have two papers that I've written. Actually, I have the Veritas thing from 97 uh, that's very personal statements. And then I, I've recently contributed a volume to a project by the Templeton Foundation uh, that's in press. And um, I can make those PDFs available. Um, I'm not sure the most efficient way to do it, whether it's just to respond to personal requests or whether it's to get it posted on the ASA website. Or Maybe I'll get it from you. Yeah, I mean, that's okay with you. they're on my computer right here. Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to sure. give them to you. Do you have a website? Is it easy to put them onto a website? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I've got a memory. Everything I've said here, except that last stuff about Lewis and Paul, uh, all the other stuff is contained in those two papers, plus some other stuff as well. So I'd be happy to put those up for general access. And if somehow it doesn't get up, for general access, send me an email and I'd be happy to send it to you. Um, let's see, there was a hand up here. Uh, George Crosby, uh, University of New York, for 21 years. Thanks very much for your talk today. Which yeah. campus? Public school, actually. Which? Public school? Uh, 45 minutes outside. Uh, okay, all right. Um, I do missions work as well uh, on a regular basis. A number of years ago, I took one of my daughters uh, with an organization. They happened to send a bumper sticker. And uh, I'm not quite sure why I did it, but I sure glad, I'm sure sure glad I did. I stuck it on my office door. Huh. And uh, from from the first moment that I did it, it was a blessing. Uh, in many ways, um, it, it it pretty much 
lets faculty and your new students know exactly who you are. At least it gets them curious. I've had students come in, you know, more than academic advisement. We'll pray together. Uh, now with my classes. What, what, what does the bumper sticker say? Uh, it's just the organization that I went, but it speaks about Christianity. I see. Okay. All right. Okay. And now, actually, the first lecture that I have each semester with my courses, uh, it's not in my syllabus, but I'll simply tell them in terms of who I am. Mm -hmm. I'll tell them that I'm a Christian. In fact, mm -hmm. I'm a born-again Christian. Mm -hmm. And if you have any questions about what that means, I'm happy to visit with you about it if you're wondering. Wow. And um, uh, I had a, I've never a, done that. a scientific uh, scientist that I know, um, when he found out that I was a born-again Christian, uh, put a bumper sticker on his vehicle that uh, simply said, born, born, born okay the first time. <laughs> Uh, and actually, so I asked him, I said, well, what's that mean? You know, what do you, what do you mean, you know, your concern in terms of being born again? And I actually had no idea. He just knew the terminology, knew it was a good thing to bash. Uh -huh. And uh -huh. scientists are, are pretty good at being um, critical of lay people who don't do their hom homework and read yes. and make assumptions or rejections about science. Yes. And so a technique that uh, I found useful is to kind of turn the tables and, and ask my scientific friends that are perhaps on the attack, um, well, tell me about your idea, your notion of being born again or salvation or any of the Gospels. And not to be combative, but mm -hmm. simply to, to get dialogue going, more often than not, they come up empty. And so I just urge them gently. Mm -hmm. I said, you know, we can have an awesome conversation if you'll do four things for me. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. <laughs> and then we can talk. Uh -huh. um, I'd settle for one of those. Because, <laughs> because they are rejecting that which they do not know, and scientists don't like those who reject things that they do not know yeah. about. Mark is very short. You, you doesn't start, take long. You doesn't take long. Mark in a couple of hours. Yeah. Next, in the back. Um, I work within uh, InterVarsity's graduate and faculty ministries, and uh, we what, had a speaker, Dwight Schwartz. We had a speaker by the name of Randy Newman who's written a book entitled Questioning Evangelism. So it's very much along the lines of what the previous speaker talked about. And he's, I have not read the book, but he gave a, the speaker uh, gave a presentation about over the period of, he, the, the guy describes himself as a New York Jew. That, those are his exact words. And he uh -huh. talks about speaking with his New York Jewish mother huh. over, over the telephone for over the course of several years and describes how he actually led her to Christ over the telephone huh. by simply asking questions, not making pronouncements, but asking questions. That gave her the occasion to say whatever she wanted to say and ultimately to begin to contemplate her own genuine lack of any concept or whatever so anyway this would ex this would re that approach would require just extraordinary self-discipline from me yeah, yeah well, exactly <laughs> I'm the son and grandson of Southern Baptist preachers I want to I want to make pronouncements you know but that, I mean that, it's remarkable the talent the, just the gentle questioning you know very neutral very unemotional well tell me what you think about you know what? What? What do you actually know about? I mean, that that kind of approach. Maybe I should try it more. Well, some some people are on edge because they have been preached at 
once too many times. Yeah. And so that, that method is blown. Yeah. Good preaching is in short supply, but bad preaching is all too common. Yes. And, uh, you know. Yes, you're right about that. So. Just to continue on with what he said, if you're curious as to why that would work in a Jewish context, I'd be happy to explain it. Um, I grew up in a Jewish home. I became a Christian when I was in graduate school. And the quickest way to close a door in a Jewish community is to, to throw verses at them. That's just not a, it's, that door will close immediately. And I think that's true with a lot of different communities. So as you're thinking about ministry into potentially hostile environments, be that, you know, atheist graduate students or whatever, you know, whatever that is with the Muslim community, whatever you're, you're talking about, I think you're in a lot of ways very much better off in those communities that we don't know as well um, in relational types of situations where you're really getting to know someone as a, as a friend, as a colleague, as a whatever, and those conversations will come. Those entry points are there. They're slow processes. We talk about you know, glacial change, but patience is, is a virtue, and so long as the conversation exists, um, there's hope for those things to turn. But patience is, in fact, significantly important in those in those conversations you'll never get anywhere if you if you start throwing things down on them so Mm -hmm. and a quick addition um dick kais i think he may have a book or at least an essay that um whose main focus is that jesus asked questions and jesus told stories he he very rarely came straight out and told people things he used those two mechanisms and i think it's because they tend to be very effective I think, you know, when he talked to the Pharisees and said, you brood of vipers, you're whitewashed on the inside and rotting on the inside, whitewashed on the outside and rotting on the inside, I think he went to preaching at that point. But <laughs> he mostly told the stories. That's exactly right. Um, Rand, Randy Newman gave the illustration of someone who said to a rabbi, why do, you, why do you always answer a question with a question? And the rabbi said, what's wrong with a question? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, Jesus reserved his most direct teaching for the religious authorities. Is this like the conch in Lord of the Flies or something? Like, it's not really on, but... I think it's a, I think it's a recorder. Hello? Oh, great. <laughs> it's even worse. All right, so... Um, What's your name? Steve. I'm a graduate student at University of Toronto in civil engineering. Um... I just wanted to say that there were two small things that I found most often raised the opportunity for me to uh, uh, talk to people about these issues. And one of them is that um, I think myself and other Christians, that we often complain about the, all, all the, um, the other Christians out there who say and do certain things which we don't approve of and have very unresearched ideas of things in science especially. But these have actually been useful because they filled the people that I talked to up with straw men to deal with. And they're so full, their hands are so full with these straw men that they don't have room for any of the things that I end up talking to them about. And so they're completely unprepared um, to have the conversation. And it sort, of, it sort of throws them off guard, and it makes them rethink things that they thought they perhaps had figured out, because they thought Christians were just those people who believed such and such. And when you present yourself as saying, well, you know, that's just a few people who don't, you know, they haven't been exposed to certain things. And if, uh, you know, I'm also a Christian with them, it's just that I, you know, happen to have this perspective. And that allows them to see that there's more to it than these people they've seen on TV, for instance. And, yep. Uh, and the other thing which is very simple but just effective is if you're, well, I was in engineering, so people are very 
Uh, engineers have a reputation for being very uh, vile at times, and so vile, vile, vile. And uh, if you hang out with them, uh, if you just hang out with them, they'll quickly notice very, very quickly that you're not doing everything that they're doing in exactly the same way, and they will plainly ask you about this because it's so such a stark contrast from what they're all doing. And uh, it's not that you want to necessarily make a case that okay, well, I am. You know, this is what it's about, is me not doing these things, but it quickly leads to other conversations, which are more productive than just a moral uh, discussion of why I do what I do. And so. what, what kind of things are you talking about? Um, what, what kind of behavioral things jump off the page? At oh, just the, just, you know, overly crude behavior. With the, I, I prefer not to detail all that. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. All right. It's just being recorded. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, like profanity, I mean, uh, I think about 60% of the words that, like, we have a little survey camp course or whatever where they shipped us off to the woods to learn how to survey, even though we won't ever do that. And and 60% uh, of the words that come out of their mouth are profanity. They're actually, it's very actually poor engineering of, like, use of words. But, um, yeah, and so I, people notice that you don't, uh, that you aren't, that you're, the things you say are taking half the time because you're not swearing nearly as much as them or, or that you're not drinking six liters of beer and shooting fireworks off the dock and trying to set the trees on fire. Like, there's just, you know, people ask about these things. and so. Over, yeah. We've been neglecting the left side of the room right here. The left wing. Yeah. Uh, Peter Hess from the National Center for Science Education. And um, I used to t work with uh, Bob Russell and Ted Peters at uh, the Center for Theology and the Natural Sciences in the Science and Religion course program. And it was very interesting moving from a fundamentally theistic organization to a largely non-theistic organization at NCSE. And Jeannie Scott and my colleagues are, are very nice and kind people, but uh, it's been sort of bizarre moving into an atmosphere where there is not a shred of faith. I'm one of two theists, our, our bookkeeper is an Episcopalian. Furthermore, they tend to be rather antagonistic because they're so busy fighting the intelligent design of the school's battle. Right, but I've found in the last year and three quarters since I've been there that that antagonism has been toned down. because, And I think many of them have simply never engaged with a Christian uh, or Christian to any, to any great degree. And so they're fighting against a stereotype that doesn't exist. Um, uh, or at least it, it exists only in, the mi in their minds because of the opponents that they've been fighting. Exactly. Um, but those, the other people do exist. They are fighting real people. Yeah, right. Uh, but, I mean, even, well, Jeannie Scott recently has been saying what a huge liability Richard Dawkins and, and company are. So yeah. there is a, a growing recognition on their part at NCSE that that is not going to get anywhere to, to take to, to support I'm glad to hear the that. hostile factions. I'm glad to hear that. The other comment, comment I wanted to say is that um, for years I taught at the University of San Francisco, uh, a Jesuit institution, and in one science and religion course, uh, I got back a set of evaluations, and in the, for the exact same class, one student said, this would have been a great course if Dr. Hess weren't, weren't such a conservative Catholic. And another said, this would have been a great course if the, if the professor were a theist. <laughs> and you wonder how on earth... Students. I mean, I didn't. I didn't try to hide my Christian background, but neither did I, you know, proclaim it in the streets, so to speak. Um, so I guess the question I have is, you know, what is the best form of evangelism uh, when you are trying to present an even-handed look at, at science and religion issues? 
um, in a way that you don't want to mislead students in one direction or the other. You're probably better qualified to answer that question than anybody in the room. Does anyone else here teach science and religion? Well, maybe you too. Maybe you too. I mean, I've never taught a course like that, and I've I've wondered that myself. And I know that I would have to fight my personal tendency. You know, as a very articulate extrovert, I'd have to fight my tendency to put myself out there. I, I would need to draw out the students and start working using Socratic techniques to get the students to encounter each other, you know, and maybe just a little bit of my own thing from time to time. But I, it, I would think that'd be a very ta challenging course to teach. I'd love to try sometime, but I think it'd be very challenging. Mm -hmm. There was a course at science, on science and religion at Stanford. For, yeah, for Richard Bube taught there. it. You know Dick Bube? Yeah. Oh, well, I've met him. I don't know him well. But uh, I've I met him. There's a whole story as to how the faculty eventually took that away from him. But that my understanding is that at some point it became just too politically incorrect. Really? For, mm -hmm. for him to be able to teach a course on Christianity and science vis-a-vis mm -hmm. -vis other ways of packaging that. Uh-huh. Uh, so, you know, maybe you could find out from him sometime. I could, you know, I could see... I can see that it would be well tolerated if it were religion and science, if it's focused exclusively on Christianity. I mean, I, I think it's actually true in the secular academy that Christianity is the most, uh, the most, you know, discriminated against religion in the world. Yeah, I don't know if I would go quite that far, but I do think I do think it's true in the humanities at least. I'm a humanities professor. I'm a historian of science. Okay. I, I, but I'm at a Christian college. But Where? Uh, at Messiah. Huh. But okay. in, in the secular academy, I think it is probably true that it is much easier for students in the sciences and engineering who are Christians. I think that's true. To, to get very good positions and rise up. I think that's true. And it is for those of us in the humanities. And why is that, do you think? Well, it's because, it's because in the humanities, your convictions are much more obvious in terms of the kinds of questions that you work on. Uh, problems you work on, research problems you work on, the, the kinds of conclusions one can draw. Right. And in the sciences, it really is much more religiously neutral. Yeah. And so, you know, if you're a good neuroscientist or uh, surgeon or, uh, you know, or engineer, engineer, engineering professor, right. then you're a good neuroscientist or a surgeon right. or engineering professor, and you're probably not going to face nearly as much uh, discrimination because um, there's always jerks in any given big department. Yep. Who might not be religious at all. Yep. And you might much be much, much more liked by your colleagues than some of the jerks. Right. You know, I mean, I think it, in terms of the institutional politics. But right. in the humanities, I think it's much more difficult because because uh, if, if there are people who just think that for whatever reason that Christianity is a very bad thing, yep. then in the humanities, it's much more obvious who you are. It's right. I, I mean, I think, you know, what I've heard, and I, I, I can easily see that it would be true, and never having been in the humanities, I don't know it for certain, but, you know, science has a long tradition of tolerating personal ex eccentricities in yeah. brilliant scientists. So it may be that to a bunch of my colleagues, my Christianity is just a personal eccentricity, like, you know, some guy, there was a guy at Caltech, a faculty member at Caltech when I was a graduate student there who used to run around in a renaissance costume. Leotards, you know, in this little puffy thing like this, and a little hat. Whatever, you know, as long as he does good work. 
And, but, you know, in science you have more objective metrics for what is good work, what is good neuroscience, what is good physics, what is good engineering. And in humanities, the ideology so frequently is a part of the work you do. Yes, exactly. Um, uh, it's, so It's much less objective yeah. in that way than the sciences in terms of the, right. the plurality of methodologies, the plurality of schools of thought that are tolerated or even encouraged right. in the humanities. Right. At Stanford, in the InterVarsity graduate group that I've been faculty sponsor of for 15 years, consistently the largest groups of graduate students is, um, is engineers. Single largest group is engineers. Uh, second largest group is medical students and other scientists. Uh, the third largest is social scientists. And the fourth, the, the lowest, is humanities. It's well, rare to get a humanities student in there. Yeah, well, there's there's national there's net database. Several different surveys have been done of of the professoriate by people like Bob Withnail at Princeton and others as to which disciplines in the academy have the highest percentages of religious believers generally, um, and which do not. Uh, the sciences are consistently higher than the humanities. Yeah. And this, usually the humanities are higher than the social sciences. Yeah. Do we have any humanities PhD students here or? Postdocs or anything? How many sciences? Well, this is American Scientific <laughs> Affiliation. This is a poorly controlled experiment. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I agree. Yeah. I, you know, we haven't addressed your question. What's the best way to do this? Mm -hmm. you know, you're I teach in a different institution. Mm -hmm. You know, he was in a Roman Catholic university. Most Roman Catholic universities, or a few exceptions, are not nearly as religious as the Protestant liberal, as the right. Christian yeah. liberal, so-called yeah. Christian liberal arts right. Such as Messiah. I mean, I would guess that Messiah, this is just totally uninformed guessing, but I would guess that you have to really prod students to take science seriously. Uh, if they aren't science majors, yeah, yeah, that tends to be the case. Yeah, um, yeah there are a number of uh, Jesuit universities that are struggling to, to have university-wide discussions on how to retain the, the Catholic uh, or, or fundamentally Christian atmosphere of the university, the yes. identity. Yes. It's very simple. They just won't do it. I'm serious. Yeah. I mean, in terms of not, I'm not meaning to criticize yeah. Jesuit universities, right. but any, any religious institution that wants to be serious has to have a faculty hiring criteria. They have to. Right. And, if they, mm -hmm. if they either, and they either do and they use it, or they don't, or they won't. And mm -hmm. it's, it's very simple. But it, it does seem like, in general, Catholic universities have held on to their religious identity over the last 200 years better than Protestant universities. I mean, Protestant universities have gone secular. I mean, Harvard, starting from Harvard, starting from Princeton, starting from Yale, Brown, uh, you know, University of Chicago. Um, I mean, they, the, the, the inevitable progression seems to be to go secular, whereas they're, you know, Notre Dame is still Notre Dame. I mean... Yeah, I think it's probably a, largely a post-Vatican II phenomenon. Uh, and maybe it's a question of catching up to the process that Harvard and Chicago went through over two centuries. Well, the faculty hiring criteria is a, it's a sore subject. You know, I thought, I mean, I've been at Stanford for 20, 25 years. I, I've been doing, you know, just full out, full throttle scientific research for 30 years since the middle of graduate school, which is when I got serious. Um, and I thought, you know, I, I'm 56 years old. Should I do something different with the last 10 or 15 years of my career? Should I go teach, um, you know, put my time more into people than into the scientific literature and ideas at this point in my life? Do I have a role to play there? 
And I've thought about, you know, what kind of college would I go to? And I think sometimes about religious colleges um, where you're free, you know, to integrate religious faith with your subject matter. Um, but what scares me about that is that, you know, are these litmus tests, these ideological litmus tests, because Christian colleges can sometimes be among the most unforgiving if your thought and teaching departs from what they want thought and taught. And uh, I'm, I would react extremely negatively to that sort of thing. I think that's an absolutely fair point. And there are Christian colleges, and there are Christian colleges. The institution has to have its commitments and needs to, needs to know what they are. And faculty who come in need to know what they are. And if, if, there's, a, if there's a good match, yeah. It's, it's not for everybody. Any more than it's for all Christian students. Yep. And some Christian students are much better at Stanford than they would at Messiah, and a few for the others, obviously, is true. Yep. Absolutely. It depends very much on the individual and the institution and how close it matches. Yep. Three or four Christian colleges, so called Christian colleges. Um, I think from some Roman Catholic colleges, they are also strong Christian colleges. But there's three or four of us that, that have. Are different from any of the others as far as we have our, our, our faculty statement of faith is the Apostles' Creed. And that's quite different from Wheaton, even, or, or Gordon, or any other place. The Seattle Pacific is like this. There's some others as well. But, you know, each, each school has a right to define its identity. Absolutely. And some people would feel more comfortable in X than in Y or C. Yep. Yep. There, there we go. Yep. Go ahead. So, How are we doing on time? Are you watching the clock, Glenn? I'm just involved in this conversation. Yeah, no, we're, we're doing fine. We're doing fine, okay. So while we're talking a little bit about faculty, for those of us that are thinking about the possibility of going in the direction of a, uh, a Christian school or a private school or a public school, um, and you see in the, the news uh, various stories about uh, faculty that have claimed their faith has interfered with uh, tenure awarding processes. And now I know in the two most um, uh, uh, notable cases, there are plenty of confounding variables that in Iowa State and at MIT um, with, with why tenure was denied to these individuals. But my question is, in the public... Um, uh, R1-style universities, is there any serious risk of um, having one's public Christianity um, and one's public beliefs interfering with, uh, with tenure? I think there's a risk, I, and I think it's higher in the humanities than it is in the sciences. Um, I don't think it's a big risk in the sciences, but you know, you there are people, powerful tenured faculty out there who are just emotional about certain things. I mean, Freeman Dyson had this wonderful review in the New York Review of Books of some of the recent militant atheist books, and he starts out his review. He says there are two kinds of atheists in the world: there are those who simply don't believe in God, and there are those for whom God is their personal enemy. <laughs> The latter, they have a personal relationship with God, actually. I believe. Um, and, you know, you get one of those kinds of people in a tenure committee, and, you know, you get on their bad side, and it can have an effect. I think it's risk, but it's not just a risk about religion. 
you get on their bad side about anything, and it can, it can, you know. I mean, most academics at Stanford, you know, I'm in a small department. I know these colleagues well. Um, Stanford tries to do the right thing. But I was on a hiring committee recently where a guy came in to, uh, to interview for a job, pretty senior guy, I mean, interviewing for a department chair job. And he came in from a state university in the South, and, you know, just in the normal give and take between a search committee, I was chairing the search committee, chair, give and take between the search committee and the candidate, turns out, you know, I mean, he looks military. He's not military, but he carries himself that way. Turns out he and his wife homeschooled his kids. Uh, turns out, you know, that he's steering his son toward the Air Force Academy. Um, turns out he's real religious. Um, he seemed to me perfectly competent to do the job. But during the search committee's discussion, there was an awkward period where, you know, the question arose, is this guy going to fit in here? And, you know, you know, I said I thought that had no, no relevance to the search. You know, and what I was thinking inside is that this is exactly the kind of discussion that used to happen in the Ivy Leagues back in the 50s to keep Jews out of the Ivy Leagues. They're not going to fit in here. They're not going to be happy here. Um, so that is the only instance that I've ever seen in interactions among faculty. That, but, but that happened, and I saw that. And it's the only instance I've ever seen. So you know, I think there are always risks about getting on the bad side of tenured faculty for whatever reason. And you know, there's a lot of noise in the tenure evaluation system. I mean, honestly, when I was an assistant professor, I you know, kept the religion stuff pretty low key. I didn't give that Veritas talk until after I had tenure. Um, and I didn't give it until after I had 10 years of relationships with my colleagues at Stanford. And they knew me. And they knew I wasn't, you know, crazy or something. Um, so, you know, to some extent, self-disclosure, um, I've always tried to do that out of a relationship. And when I have historical relationships with people, just as a part of them getting to know me, you know, learn these things about me by me telling the truth about what I do. But, um, you know, I really admired that student who stood up at his PhD thesis at Vince and th said, lastly, I want to thank my principal advisor, Jesus Christ. And I'm like, I would never have done that. So there are different ways to play this. I think, you know, I think it is a risk more in the humanities than the sciences, but um, I don't think it's a huge risk. You want to speak to that? Oh, no. Want a new question. Something completely different. Um, you alluded to the situations where um, everyone at the table assumes that nobody's a Christian and says something sort of obnoxious. Yes. Um, I tend to be not very confrontational, so I'm not the person to raise my hand and say, oh, well, actually, you know, yes. I disagree with you. So yes. I wonder if you or anyone has can brainstorm ideas on how to handle those kinds of situations. You know, I, that is a really interesting question. I've been in some very uncomfortable situations. So... A colleague of mine at Stanford, who's actually also a Christian, and I have taught a course the past two springs in um, social and ethical issues in the neurosciences. And it's for undergraduates, and it's trying to introduce undergraduates. We take a different topic each evening, so it's an evening class. We have guest speakers. It's substantially outside speakers. I give a couple lectures. He gives a couple lectures sort of preparing the students for certain things. But really, we're trying to expose them to a broad range of neuroscience and how it interfaces with society increasingly. So, you know, we get all kinds of speakers in there from all kinds of backgrounds. And, you know, this is the evening that one of the faculty 
you know, compared compared uh, uh, religion to smallpox, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and I felt distinctly uncomfortable because I knew that some of the undergraduates in the class were religious, and I did not know whether to confront the guy publicly in front of the class or whether to take it up with him privately afterwards. And I decided to take it up with him privately afterwards. I mean, I had my computer open. I went to Wikipedia, looked up smallpox. Wikipedia has killed, a, you know, this Wikipedia, I mean, uh, smallpox killed, according to Wikipedia, and it, this number seems incredible to me, but according to Wikipedia, smallpox killed 100 million people just in the 20th century. You know, and I just and this guy was the chairman of the genetics department at Stanford, and I just wanted to say, Rick, and I know this guy. So, you know, he's a rational, nice guy. And I said, Rick, smallpox has killed a hundred million people. You know, even in the worst excesses of religion, you know, the body count's not that high, and you're ignoring all the great stuff that goes on. Mm -hmm. I mean, how can you make a statement like that? Yeah. And I have taken that up in exactly those terms with two faculty who I've heard sign on to that statement. You know, and then they back off. And revise, but I've wondered: Should I have done that in front of class? Should I have put him in an uncomfortable position, the same as he put students potentially in an uncomfortable position? I don't know. Another faculty member who's a powerful figure at Stanford in the stem cell business, and he's evangelical about it. And these these people are deeply, deeply irritated about the restrictions that the Bush administration has put on, you know, investigation of stem cells. And I'm on their side, frankly. I think, you know, the merits of the case, I think the stem cell research should go forward. Uh, but this guy is just, you know, he's really, really antagonistic about the decision and about the religious basis for it. And he said in this class, he told students, he said, you know, if you're against this research, the blood of the patients who are going to die is on your hands. Mm -hmm. you know? And, and it was exactly the same rhetoric that the anti-abortion people use. Mm -hmm. You know, the blood of the unborn babies is on your hands. You know, exactly the kind of demagoguery on both sides. And here's a Stanford professor who could win a Nobel Prize for the stem cell stuff he's done using this in a classroom. And again, I didn't know, I didn't challenge him in class. I talked to him about it afterwards. I decided if he ever said something like that in one of my classes again, I would, I would challenge him in class. But I don't know. So I, don't, I don't know. Do people have any suggestions for how you handle it? Just because, to some degree, you have um, you have to be humble. You don't. Your your goal is not to make the person look bad. And I think a lot of times that's what's held my tongue is I I don't want to put somebody in an awkward position who said something pretty obnoxious, and I don't want them to feel badly, and I don't want to sound holier than thou. Yeah. And, and Matthew eighteen says go to somebody privately. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If they don't. If they don't. Yeah, but I but I think in the context of you know 500 undergraduates just heard a an awful thing from someone. I, I don't know that you could say well, that applies to that's within the church. Right? No, I understand, but there's a there's a principle about how you deal with other people. Yeah. I think. So okay, I, I you think, and then and then over here. I think um, in that context, you might want to say something just for the sake of all the other people, but you can choose to say something that really attacks the person, or you can say it in a way that that doesn't put them down, but says, you know, let me offer another alter an alternative way of looking at this or something, and just throw another thought into the pot, which then helps, you know, uplift the whole conversation. So I think it's what you choose to say that might... My, my graduate advisor, when I was a graduate student, 
told me that I had a good hostile question. <laughs> I'm not very good at the uplifting, you know, I, I, but I know exactly what you mean. There are people who have a talent for that, who will go to the microphone, and when I'm sitting there steaming and, you know, thinking of how to thrust the, the you know, the rapier thrust, you know, somebody with just a very gentle attitude and very objective attitude, and just by raising another possibility, as you say, lifts awareness in a non-aggressive, non-nasty way, and it's a talent I need to learn. It helps if you're witty. Yeah. <laughs> it really helps. Yeah, sugar-coated with humor. I wonder also if, if that happens, if at the beginning of the next class there might be an opportunity to say, I... I suspect maybe some of the things that were shared at the last meeting, some of you might have found a little troubling, and I, uh, and then just say whatever you think is appropriate. It's not, in a sense, confronting them in a public way, but it's also uh, distancing yourself so the students don't leave with the wrong impression that you were sympathetic with that because you said nothing either then or later. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. Then you sort of have the best of both worlds, and it can be done in a way that isn't even done like a cheap shot no. after the fact. But as a, uh, let's yeah. take a minute just to sort of, yeah. you know, this, this guy close the loop on this. And I agree. This guy I co-teach with is more experienced at teaching than I am, and he, I've seen him do that kind of thing. The skills I'm still trying to learn. Being in a medical school, I don't teach much. There's also the idea... And this this comes from more of a counseling setting to to use I messages rather than you messages. You know, I found that offensive or I found that to be counterfactual or whatever you want to say and then people can do their own research. Rather than you dodo, don't you know that smallpox killed hundred million people? <laughs> <laughs> you need to get, you, know, so you and then the microphone down here in front. Yeah, I was just gonna one other thought in, in just that once you've, you know, you've walked away, you've had this private conversation, you also, if you want to, you know, again, make sure that your student body doesn't feel like you're bad-mouthing this other person or goes off and thinks that, you can, in fact, even preface that conversation the next week by saying, you know, I had this conversation with so-and-so who spoke with you last week, and we were, you know, we realized that we didn't necessarily agree on X topic, and so I wanted to share with you just another, you know, and that way you're not, Suggesting that you're doing this behind someone's back, either you, you don't invalidate what they've what they've said or their position, you don't make them look bad, but you've still provided again your your point of view. You guys are good. Is it going down? Much better than I am. Down down in the front and then back and back. Okay, well I'm sort of going to switch gears here a little bit, but we can switch back later if you want. Okay. Um, so first of all, in terms of one of the things that I do is I would say that I'm still struggling to figure everything out that I believe with respect to my faith versus my science. And so one of the things I do, I think, to establish credibility is I'm very open about that. And it's like, oh, I haven't figured this out yet or I haven't figured that out yet because to me it seems like part of the antagonism towards Christianity is it's very much like I have the truth and I'm going to give you the truth and people are turned off, at least that's my experience, people don't like that attitude at all. Yeah. Um, one of the things for me being in neuroscience and a background in psychology is uh, you were talking a lot about meaning and assigning meaning to things and you know some of the arguments against that are that well you know we're just evolutionarily 
program to find meaning because that's adaptive and so on. So do you get those kinds of questions from your colleagues? And if so, how do you respond to them? Sure. I mean, I, I accept that we're evolutionarily programmed to adapt meaning. And I would say, what do you expect? That's, you know, all of evolution has been leading to us. It's set up to this kind of world. This is part of creation. We're part of creation to accept me. That's perfectly consistent with my theology of creation. And it, and it would be it would be a bad thing for my theology if this were not deeply ingrained. The search for meaning, which I consider a religious quest, it'd be bad for, for me theologically if that weren't deeply ingrained in every human being. You know, the, the ones that get me the most are the people who say, I don't have any need for me. I don't, I don't need to figure it out. I don't need some larger thing. I don't need to fit into some larger picture, just this little thing here. So I, you know, I, you know, I don't, it's, it's common in evolutionary psychology and evolution in general to think, aha, you know, we have an evolutionary reason for this. Therefore, now we know the real thing and, you know, we can get rid of this meta level explanation. But, you know, I, when, when you think that, when you think that God created through evolution, and if Simon Conway Morris is right about convergent evolution, and these things are going to recur over and over again because you know that's conforming us to the way the world really is, that's you know that's consistent with my theology. So I don't, you know, I don't feel like I have to choose between meaning and mechanism. I mean, I see, I can discriminate these chairs. I operate in the visual world at a very high level. And I firmly believe there are mechanisms inside the brain that enable me to do that. And the fact that there are mechanisms doesn't, doesn't somehow devalue the fact that I can recognize chairs and distinguish people's spaces. It's both, both are true and part of the meaning. So evolutionary explanations don't bother me. Well, plus they're highly speculative at this point. Oh, yeah. Evolutionary <laughs> psychology is one of the most highly speculative. It's, it's a stretch to call it a science sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. I mean, is that? Okay? I mean, how do you feel about that? I want to know what you think. Well, you're more of a psychologist than I. Yeah, I, I, I think if you look at, I'm reading about the biology of belief. I think part of the reason I keep struggling is is there are more emotional reasons why I struggle with my faith that aren't completely intellectual. But um, the intellectual answer you gave me makes a lot of sense. Yeah. My biggest problems, to me, the most powerful arguments against my religion, the ones that really make me quake inside, are not scientific. It's just reading the front page of the newspaper every day. Yeah. And it's reading about children getting beaten to death by parents. So, you know, right. there's this awful one with these people starving this, this child. Have you guys been reading about this in the newspaper? Handicapped child. It's just dreadful. I mean, those are the things, you know, the problem with evil is, you know, the biggest problem for us as Christians to deal with. If I were an atheist, I think the problem of good would be the biggest problem for me to deal with. Right. 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 The problem for someone like Dawkins is that he doesn't believe in this, that's a problem. Yeah. And so it's for him, it's a huge problem. He was a huge problem. Right. I agree. But the things that make me quake, that sometimes make me think, you know, when my faith is weak, in the moments of weakest faith for me, it's just seeing the suffering and just thinking, is this really a good world? Right. Seeing my father die of Alzheimer's disease and seeing him just slowly robbed of uh, mentality and personality. And, you know, being able to affirm still this is a good world. Right. And 
yeah. you know, we're loved despite all the pain and suffering. I mean, that's, right. that's the hardest thing for me. Yeah. I mean, I sometimes distance myself from all that evil and say it, it, that's just the way it is. And I, I like Lewis's book, C.S. Lewis's book about the problem of pain, which I think explains a lot. But when you boil it down, I'm very thankful when good things happen to me and I thank God for them. But when bad things happen, like I'm not quite sure. I, I don't hold God responsible in the same way and it feels kind of inconsistent to me. Mm-hmm. Can I just make a comment to that sure. point? When I was working for the Center for Theology and Natural Sciences, I organized a, a conference at Seattle Pacific University that uh, Ted mentioned with a number of uh, interesting faculty. And one of the really profound talks was by Rick Steele, um, whose daughter has fibrodysplasia ossificans progressiva, which gradually turns all muscle into a second skeleton. And he gave an incredible talk called... Um, Unremitting Compassion, The Moral Psychology of Dealing with uh, of Caring for Children with Life-Threatening Diseases. And he's since published it on the Internet. It's, it's a wonderful essay. And, I mean, not, not stinting in the least about the profound psychological and emotional problems that parents go through, but confronting just what Bill was talking about and, you know, what... what uh, What's the guy's name? Uh, Rick Steele, R-I-K-S-T-E-E-S-T-E-E-L-E. Um, he's at uh, Seattle Pacific. Um, I can't remember which department. Google Richard Steele or Rick Steele. R- Rick Steele. Uh, the, the moral, the moral psychology, or un- unremitting compassion, and Rick Steele will get it to you. But I've been in e- email contact, and actually, um, I used, um, I quoted from his essay um, in a, um, a homily I gave at um, the funeral of a friend who died last year of a Lou Gehrig's disease, um, who, who actually was a non-theist. Uh, well, sort of a, a new ager with uh, not clear views, but but really a spiritual, a, yeah, spiritual but not religious. Uh, but actually, uh, Jim, my friend, a former mountaineering partner, was just he he gave an amazing uh, testimony through his death to to meaning which even he couldn't quite see to. But the way he died, I, I just thought of Rick Steele and and his daughter, and uh, um, I mean, I know it's. Um, it's a very personal thing because it's his daughter, but it's available on the internet. And Rick is a, just an incredible person. I don't know whether you know him, Ted, from no, Seattle sounds Pacific. Sounds like a great thing to read. Yeah. I mean, my father died of Alzheimer's, and I saw him deteriorate slowly. You know, regress. They literally regress back in time, and I saw him become like a two-year-old. Uh, and saw all the agony my mother went through, and I, you know, it was it was very very tough. And trying to decide what I would do in that situation was very, very tough. And how to how to be faithful and affirm, you know, the love of God in those situations is it's a tough thing. Science doesn't bother me nearly as much as that. <laughs> well, this this backs up to a previous You're topic, very and it, quiet back it's there. <coughs> yeah. Well, I when you're in the same room, I don't I don't like to compete with you. Uh, the the topic of uh, when somebody says something uncomfortable or or uh, I'm Mark Shellhammer. I'm a professor at Johns Hopkins. Thank you. Uh, I find it I find it ironic. First of all, it comes up not only with religion but also politics. People will just assume everybody in the room is a liberal Democrat. It may or may not be true, and I may or may not agree with some of their points. It's the point that bothers me is the assumption, and that's what I'll sometimes comment on. I'll say something like, you know, it's not necessarily the case that everybody here believes that. Or 
you know, this is supposed to, everybody here, I believe, prides themselves on being uh, liberal in the true liberal sense of tolerance, and yet those are that's a, a non-tolerant uh, thing to say, an intolerant comment to assume that everybody thinks the same way. You, that's you an, your other faculty or in classes you say stuff like uh, that. Faculty. Usually, it's a faculty social event where somebody will say something. I bet that doesn't go over too great to point out their intolerance to it. Well, it's sometimes there's a gentle way to do it, but it will at least it will sometimes deflect the com deflect the conversation into right. that in, into that direction, right. and really bring up the point. It, it's almost it's shaming them in, in a subtle way yeah, to yeah, say you're all we're all supposed they're to be so above <laughs> we're all supposed to be above this. We're all supposed to be welcoming of all sorts of different viewpoints, and yet you've implicitly identified a viewpoint that's not valid here, yeah. and that's inappropriate. Yep. Now, I won't say that I'm as eloquent as that in a social setting right. in, laying, in laying that out, but I, try, I do try to make the comment yeah. to at least get people to realize, oh, you know, maybe this is true. Maybe we're, yeah. maybe we're demonstrating some... Mm -hmm intolerance and therefore undercutting our true liberal ideals. To master, you know, a gentle touch, to be able to speak truth and love. And that's, you know, that's a tough thing to master, um, especially for someone like me who's naturally inclined to combat. It's, it's, a, it's a real thing to strive for. Yep, it's a pleasure. Thank you guys. It's wonderful the way everyone contributed.